Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. Hi, all you road to growth listeners. Uh, today we have Katie Belfi. Uh, so Katie, you're the founder and principal consultant at Belfi Consultant LLC, correct? Yeah, sir. That's right. See, you know what? We had a little hiccup beforehand. We got it covered. We got it, everything good to go. So question, I mean, so I get a lot of people reaching out to me about coming on the podcast and standing up and I'll do a little background research or they'll tell me, okay, I want my name to be this. I want my description to be this and so on and so forth. I didn't see anything where it said um, Katie Belfi Esquire, but you are an attorney. Yes, I am an attorney, and I think okay. on LinkedIn, I think on LinkedIn, I got my Esquire up there. Um, I try not to confuse people because I am no longer practicing. So okay. it's it's something that I'm proud of. It's definitely one of the stepping stones that got me to where I am, but it's not what I'm currently doing. So I tried just to keep it out of my title for clarity. Do you feel a difference when you were using the Esquire in your name and kind of sending emails out, or do you? Okay. Definitely, definitely, and, and and it's why it's it's still in my signature block, um, and it's why I use it on LinkedIn, especially when I was starting out in this industry as a young woman. It gave that ESQ added credibility where I might not have had it with people that tend to look for titles. Do you is in, in conversation? Have you learned when to kind of bring it up and when not to? I mean, just to give quick validity to who you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's really important to recognize the, the the tokens that you carry with you that are meaningful to other people. Even if there's something that you're not currently working on or not currently really focusing on, it's really important to understand the weight that that carries for other people and to sort of zoom out and think about the ripple effect of those impacts. Because for example, my background as an attorney is not something that's implicitly relevant to the work that I'm doing right now but it's always a collateral in, in, in a collateral thought for the people that I'm working with that, hey, if we have a regulatory issue, this is somebody that at least knows how to read regulations. I gotcha. So is it mostly the regulation aspect of it that correlates to your uh, current business for the most part? I mean, on on paper, yes. Yeah. For me personally, the the way that I was taught to think as an attorney in terms of problem solving and client management, I use every single day, and it's it's really a part of the of the person that I am, and it's part of the business that I'm building, whether I like it or not. Uh, because that training, it it goes really deep, and you know, you don't even realize that you have this skill set until you're standing up next to somebody who doesn't, and then you realize it. it it's, it's funny. Sometimes we, the and baggage can be good, positive and negative. And I think the positive aspect of it, if you're, if you're trained to saying, okay, well, I mean, for me, time is one of the most valuable things that we have. Right. And Absolutely. when someone's on time or before, you know, the time that you have, it makes it feel like the conversation is going to be a lot more positive, but then you see other people when you're going to those meetings and they're, they're late, but they seem that's the norm. That's okay. It kind yeah. of brings that that little extra to it. So I can only imagine with basically your years of law school and understanding, okay, how to do this, how to do this. And when someone doesn't do it, you're like, okay, wait, I got to go speak on their language. I got to figure out how to adapt a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I will say in terms of positive and negative, there are definitely people that 
I'll be talking to that as soon as I say I'm attorney, they say, oh, forget it. You know, they assume that I'm already going to be somebody that is creating obstacles for them or like bringing up laws that they're not thinking about. So you really need to manage your audience and know who you're talking to. What is so your consulting uh, um, company? What does that look like? What does that consist of? If someone if you're on an elevator, someone's like, what do you do for a living? How would you describe it? I help people prepare for emergencies and then clean up after the fact when they weren't prepared. So I offer readiness and resilience consulting from to everyone from individuals to corporations. And you know that that, that service is slightly different with each of those audiences, but the foundation is applicable to everybody. When did you ever um, I know you had your your law degree. Did you practice for a period? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was a I was a commercial litigator for several years uh, working out of Manhattan and uh, very quickly realized that was not for me, but stuck it out for a couple years and uh, wanted to do something that felt like I was being more of service to people. So I went to the public sector. I actually joined the Federal Emergency Management Agency as an attorney in Manhattan as well and joined up right before Hurricane Sandy. So talk about trial by fire. I, uh, I, was, I was the only attorney for FEMA in the state of New York when Hurricane Sandy hit. And it was, I mean, talk about being thrown into the deep end. It was just an absolutely incredible experience. By far, one of the most formative work experiences I've ever had. And, and it's, it's why I do the work I do today. What did that consist of? So what the FEMA attorneys do, so FEMA is basically a, a check right, for, in the simplest form, it's a check writing agency. But yeah. the money that FEMA is pushing out is taxpayer dollars. So there's a huge amount of regulation around what they can and can't do with that money to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse and protect taxpayer dollars. So attorneys for FEMA are basically tasked, tasked with regulating their FEMA programs to make sure that they're acting in accordance with the law. But in a situation like Sandy, what we were trying to do was figuring out just how far we could stretch the bounds of those regulations to get help to people who really needed it because we found ourselves applying those regulations in a place that wasn't used to seeing disasters like this. Most of FEMA regulations are written for urban America, I'm sorry, suburban America, and we were dealing with a disaster in Manhattan. So it was, I mean, it was, it was super challenging, but it was one of the greatest opportunities I've had to be creative in the legal context. And the ramifications were incredible. We were able to build programs while we were implementing them. And it's an opportunity that I'll always be grateful for having. In that kind of situation, so was there, there was a, a level of funds that were um, set up to go to, I guess, those different companies, entities, and so on and so forth. Was it a constant ba a balance of, okay, well, we could possibly give it over here or give it over here, or it was just, we got to find a way to be creative with anyone that's asking for it. So it's it's really, there's a lot of structure around who gets money from FEMA and how, and it's built into different programs. So for example, there's a swath of money that's dedicated for individual assistance, a swath of money that goes to public assistance, that's gonna go to states, cities, counties, and sort of your private non nonprofit companies. And so that stuff was sort of in place, but it was a question of, all right, for individual assistance, that money is usually go that usually goes towards providing trailers for people as you know temporary housing. That's not something we could do in Manhattan. How else can we take those funds and turn it into 
a program that still fits within the bounds of the law, but actually delivers help that's necessary and helpful for the place that we're doing the work. So when you first started in law, right, you're litigating between an issue already went wrong. And then yeah. basically now Hurricane Katrina, basically something went wrong, but on a, I guess a bigger scale. And now you're trying to fix that issue. Now yeah. with the consulting, you're basically trying to fix the issues before they actually happen in essence. That's, I mean, that's a great summary. I, you know, I think it's, it's learning from helping people manage disasters and issues after the fact and figuring out how you can build a toolkit to mitigate against those disasters beforehand and also minimize the damage that's going to occur because you can't prevent everything. And it's just, it's a different form of risk management. You know, it's, it's, you're as an attorney, you're trying to help people avoid liability in the work that I do. I'm trying to help people avoid a collapse of their business on one hand or a major interruption of their family life on the other hand. You know, pretty much a problem solver, right? Yeah. That's what I call myself. That's exactly you, right. Have you always had kind of that, that mindset growing up? You know, it's funny you ask that question because people don't believe me when I tell this story, but I grew up the youngest of four children in a big, loud Italian family. And when I was four years old, all I wanted for my birthday was a fire escape ladder. I, I hounded my mom. I was like, please get me this fire escape ladder. You know, she's like, what does this kid want a fire escape ladder for? But fine, fine, you can have one. And it, for, I mean, it really was like from that point in my life, I was anticipating issues and trying to find ways to solve them before they happen. And, you know, my mom thought giving me a fire escape ladder was the solution and that was it. She'd never have to think about it again. But that was really just the start. From then on, it was like, okay, we need fire drills. We need a plan. <laughs> so, I, I mean, this is just who I've always been. How how old are you? Right now, I'm 35. No, no, I mean, not you never oh. ask a woman their age. I know, no, I, I mean, was like, that's bold. <laughs> no, I mean, how old were you when, when were you, you were asking for the last? Ah, I was four. I was four years old. Okay. Did you actually put together the plans in place after you got the ladder? Oh, 100%. Because my, my next question was, all right, this is a big metal heavy thing. Am I going to be able to do it? So I, I, you know, I said to my mom, I was like, we need to practice. I need to make sure that I can do this myself. And, you know, when I tell, when I tell people about this, they're like, there, there's some psychological stuff that you should probably dig into there. Like you didn't feel safe. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, this is just who I am as a person. So, so after that, you're, you're off to high school, good grades, everything positive there. Huge, a huge nerd. Um, okay. I, I was always, I was always a bookworm. I was into a lot of very weird things. Like when I was in high school, my summer internships were all in like science labs. I was doing research at these labs. I, I did the, it was Westinghouse, but now it's like the Intel science competition. I went to a science-based high school. So like this was really what I was into at the time. Again, problem solving. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was never somebody that, stuff came easy to. I, I worked really, really hard. I was always studying. Um, and it, I mean, it paid off. I ended up doing very well in high school, went to a great college, then was able to get into law school by some miracle um, because standardized tests were never my thing. And I mean, it's, it's, it, nothing has changed. I have continued to work that hard 
every step of the way. And for anyone who tells you that, you know, you can be an overnight success, please introduce me to one of these overnight successes because I've never met one. What, what drives you? I mean, what, what drove you back then? What drives you today? I mean, I think it's changed. Well, well, I guess at, at the heart of it, it's, it's always excellence. I, I have extremely high expectations for myself. I was a competitive athlete from the time I was five years old. I was a swimmer. And I think that laid the groundwork for me to learn how to work hard and, you know, push for goals and establish expectations for myself. And it just sort of bled over into every other area of my life. Um, I also being the being the youngest of four and having three older siblings that were super capable and kicking butt all over the place didn't hurt. You know, it was sort of like, yeah, you, you really got to up your game so you can keep up with these people. Um, but I think it was always excellence in myself. That was always the number one focus. And then when I got into the public sector, it was realizing that I had the capable, I had the capability to affect change outside of myself. And that's really been the driving factor in the last few years and, and sort of the direction that I'm taking my work. Does it ever get draining? And I mean, now I think it's probably powerful having that why of helping other people. Um, I think that, I mean, and just, maybe just for me, the idea of chasing excellence over time can get draining, especially if you don't give yourself the ability to say, congratulations, nice work, whatever it might be. Yeah. Did you, did it ever get draining? If it did, what did you do to kind of give yourself that oomph for the next hurdle, the next uh, opportunity? How did that work totally. out? Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of dark side of chasing excellence is that it, it leads to unrealistic expectations at times and chasing perfectionism. And it definitely took a lot of mindfulness and sort of introspection to get real with myself about my expectations and and sort of allow myself to have those those illusions of grandeur, but appreciate that those are illusions and bring myself back down to earth with with respect to what are my concrete goals and what are the things that I need to really achieve to make myself feel like this was a successful day at the end of the day. Um, and I think that celebrating the wins is a big part of that. So, you know, to your point about congratulating yourself, that's something that I have to remind myself of constantly. And I, I have like little post-its on my desk that, you know, just say celebrate the wins because something as simple as, you know, booking an interview, this is great, but, you know, being on a platform like this, having this conversation, networking with other people in, in this industry, other entrepreneurs that are making shit happen, that's a win. And it's so easy to get swept up in what else has to happen and the next step and, and overlook that. So I think that's where that slowing down and that mindfulness piece comes into play all the time. When did you understand um, that idea of celebrating wins? Is, was it at a younger age when you're doing swimming? Was it in college? I mean, it was later in life. When did you start? Figuring oh, out yeah, that? it was much later for me. I mean, I was I was ruthless with myself as a kid, um, through college, through law school. I think it was only, it was probably only when I let myself off the hook from being a commercial litigator that I realized that, you know, the, the, like the, the expectations that you set for yourself aren't always necessarily the best thing for you. And it took me a long time to get to that place where I could let myself off that hook and say, you don't have to be a litigator at a big firm to prove your worth. You know, you can actually go do something that 
you feel drawn to that's more heart centered and that's something that you feel good about doing and not something that you necessarily feel like you have to do. Uh, and that was probably that that was probably the pivotal point for me in my life. Do you remember that that time frame when that actually happened of what I mean, because it was it either internal, was it external? I mean, how did you come to the realization that it was OK and using your words, letting yourself off the hook? Yeah, um, it was mostly internal. I mean, I have to I have to say I do. I do have great friends and a lot of friends that I was working with in the law firm. Um, we talked we talked about this stuff all the time. But it really, it was probably the stuff that I was doing outside of the law firm while I was becoming, while I was practicing, I also became a uh, personal trainer and a holistic health coach on the side because I was always nourishing this other interest as just, you know, something that I really loved. And I think the work that I was doing on that side of things allowed me to sort of really reflect on, on what the work was doing to me and the version of myself that showed up at that office every day. And it became really crystal clear that it was not the person that I wanted to be. I mean, and maybe this is me, maybe this is bringing my baggage like we talked about it before, but a, an attorney and a holistic life coach, it doesn't seem like you know, eight, one plus one equals two there. What I mean, walk me through kind of how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why the the other one didn't hang on because, you know, I as as a, an athlete my whole life, fitness, wellness, nutrition, all of it was always a, it was always an interest and it was always something that I had boiling on the back burner. You know, I was always committed to my own well being, and then I just started to explore these other avenues of potentially helping other people doing it. And you know, as I started, I mean, the only way you can get to that point is if you're doing that work on yourself and re recognizing what was going on with my body physically, emotionally, mentally, I was just in a terrible place. And I knew, you know, if I was asking myself as a, as a health coach, do I have anything to give to a client right now? And the answer was resoundingly no. <laughs> it was like, well, something's gotta change. I've gotta figure out a way to, to get this, this, this vessel and this being in a place where, you know, I could potentially help others do the same. How long of a, a process was that when you were doing the holistic life coaching to actually transition out of your uh, commercial? Um, I mean, it was probably it was probably about eighteen months wow, before, okay. like from the time that I said I can't do this anymore till the time I actually handed in my notice, because I wasn't at the point where I was. First of all, I was young, pretty much just out of law school, and I had an enormous amount of student debt that I was carrying. So I certainly wasn't in a position to say, I'm just gonna drop this and hope for the best and sort of roll the dice as a health coach without any client base whatsoever. So um, it, it took me some time. And in the meantime, I, I built up the side gig and you know had some clients and allowed myself to do more of that work and slowly sort of peeled out, at least, I mean, I was there all the time, but peeled out mentally. So I wasn't destroying myself the same way. Do you remember the moment when you said, okay, now's enough. Now I can actually give my notice. Was there a, a number? Was there um, something inside you? What was that? What was that thing that allowed you to say, okay, right now is enough? I was, I was actually a breaking point with work. Uh, you know, I, I, I had obviously built a foundation that made me feel comfortable to move. And I had also secured 
another, my FEMA job at that point. So I felt like, okay, I can make this jump. Um, but I had some time because I, I told him that I was, I was going to need some time to extricate from my, myself from the law firm, but I pulled the trigger sooner than I expected to when I was dealing with a particularly terrible partner at the firm who was calling me on Saturday to start a new case. And, you know, I, I truly was at a funeral and, and told him this and he just did not care at all. It was like, I don't care. Get me the work. And I was just like, you know what, <laughs> this is it. I'm done. Here's my notice. And, uh, it was, it was really a blessing. How did, do you remember how that moment felt? I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. Oh. I mean, I, my entire existence in commercial litigation was, built on fear, anxiety, stress, like, you know, self-hate, you know, feeling like I was, I was never enough. I was never good enough. I was terrible. I was a failure, all of this, all the time. And so in that moment, it was sort of a, the pinnacle of all of that feeling, like you're the ultimate failure. You're, you're quitting. Uh, but at the same time, the, the sort of flip side of that was like, you need to get out of here. That voice just became so much louder than that, that, you know, that judgment, that self-hate voice. And it was like, like run for your life. That was the message. It was like, run for your life. And I did. And I never looked back. Was there, was there a moment after all that I'm done, I walked away and just a sigh of relief, a breath of fresh air. Was there, anything in the coming weeks, coming months, or maybe even coming years where you're just like, I made the right decision or did you know it instantly? I, I mean, I knew it instantly. Okay. Um, but then, I mean, in the following weeks, months, years, I mean, my, my health, my personality, my stress levels, my sleep quality, everything improved by leaps and bounds. I mean, I was, I was a shell of a person. So it wasn't hard to see improvement. I had a long way to go. Um, but till this day, I mean, I look at my my friends that were sort of in the same place as I was, and I look at the path that they're on now and, and where they've gone. And I don't for one second feel like, oh man, I wish I did that. I mean, sure, they've had the stability of having the same job and, and, and a sort of defined path, but I can't imagine not having had the varied experiences that I've had over the last 10 years and having the opportunity to take the risks that I've taken. Do you think if you never had that conversation or is there something that that company could have done to keep you there? Or do you no. think it was, it would have been another breaking point if it wasn't that one? Yeah, it was only a matter of time. I mean, it was, and if you've ever talked to young litigators, I mean, I think it's probably getting a little bit better now. This was, 10 years ago, uh, 12 years ago. Um, the culture at a lot of law firms is just so, so toxic. And it's not even about like tending to snowflakes. It was really like a lack of humanity in a lot of instances. And um, I, I, would, I would never do that to myself again. Now with your new company or with your company, I mean, before, right, with the commercial litigation, you were given the cases, you were given the files, you were, now you're actually finding the business and then working the business, so forth. How has that transition changed for you? I mean, it's, there's nothing better. 
there is okay. nothing better than being able to choose your own clients and obviously within reason, right? Like you do need to pay the bills. Um, but just establishing the expectation around client relationships and establishing for clients, like what they can expect from you, what's reasonable, what's not establishing boundaries, really having a set of values that you get to stick to and say, you know, if a, if a client is, is not adhering to those values, being able to say, thank you, but no, thank you. You know, this is not the business that I run. Um, it's a tremendous relief. It's also a tremendous privilege. And, um, you know, I think that for, it's, it's sort of the risk reward for what we do as entrepreneurs in this, walking this tightrope of never knowing if you're gonna have enough clients, if you're gonna be able to continue doing what you're doing next month, if you're gonna be able to cover your overhead, all of it. The reward is that you also get to dictate exactly how that business operates. And it's very difficult to put a price tag on that. Has there been any moments in building your business that you've thought about going back to something that's that's more salary based, more hourly based? Uh, <laughs> I mean, every day, twice a day. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, but I think I think you put that in the in the sort of um, self preservation category. You know, that voice is in your head is just the voice that's looking to protect you and and keep you comfortable and make sure that you feel secure doesn't mean you have to listen to that voice. Sure, it'll it'll keep you out of trouble, you know, that fight or flight, it'll keep you out of trouble when you're being faced with real danger, you know, a, a lion's chasing you, but um, it, it there's, a, there's a logical brain override that does exist. And I think you do this work long enough, that logical brain gets a lot louder than that voice that's telling you, you know what, you should just close up and, and go find a nine to five and, and have that security back. So do you do you think you'll constantly or consistently have those those thoughts and just kind of pushing them back over time, or do you think there'll be a moment in your in your career and as you're building your business that you won't have those thoughts anymore? That's a great question. I real I really hope so. I hope yeah. that this is something that that I will lose over time. Um, you know, some of my mentors and some of the entrepreneurs that I really look up to assure me that they still got it, you know, even after you get to that point where you're like, okay, I've made it, I'm, I'm good. There's still that voice in the back of your head that's like, but how long will it last? Are you sure, are you sure you're good? Are you really sure you're good? Um, and you know, I think I think it's, the, it's up to us to sort of build the relationship with that voice and get to a place where you can say, thank you very much, but I'm going to proceed as planned. Um, I think, do you, do you know who uh, David Goggins is? Uh-huh. Okay. I, one of his uh, talks or one of his speeches or whatever, he talks about the idea every time he's going through some kind of struggle or that thought that comes about like we're talking about, he goes to his his memory bank of all like the things that he's accomplished, like mm -hmm. those things that he's done to kind of say, hey, you know what? You might be saying this, but I did this. So I don't need to listen to you kind of thing. So it's, I mean, I think it's a great way of looking at it, for at least for totally. me. Totally. Absolutely. And I mean, I mean, that's, that's based in neuroscience. Like if we face our fears, if we actually walk through a hypothetical of our fear, we, we minimize that fear response that we would have to that thing because we're teaching our brain that we can handle it. And so, you know, giving ourselves those examples of those successes is like, we're gonna, we're gonna rewire that neural pathway and say, hey, 
you know, this, this fear is a hypothetical, but this success is a real thing. If you were talking to yourself, your, I guess, college self, the one that's basically still pushing herself for excellence and, and striving, is there any kind of advice you would give that person today? Oh, yes. Yeah, so much advice. I think the number one thing would be make sure that the choices that you're making right now are really for you and not for somebody else. And I think it's, I think it's a really tough thing to do at 18 or 19 when you're, when you're sort of making these decisions about what am I going to do when I grow up and you know, what direction am I going to take my career in? But there's so much influence on kids at that stage that, you know, building that connection with your intuition and with yourself to know like, what is it I truly want? If you could start building that at the beginning of college. So when you get to graduation day, you know that what you're doing is actually following that drive, that intuition, that guide. I mean, you'll be, you'll be a step ahead of everybody. And that's so tough to do because we're constantly being told what to do, do this, do that. And to actually say, what do I want? That's, I think, a very powerful thing when you come to that realization, what it is. And, um, so talking in the future, we talked to the past. Now we're going to the future. Mm-hmm. I know you're doing some changes with your company. If we're talking to you in, like, say, five years from now. Yeah. How's your company been looking? Uh, who's Katie going to be? Um, Katie will be a best-selling author, um, and she will have a thriving multifaceted consulting firm that services individuals to corporations on scale and delivers access to products that are not just sort of, um, sort of checkbox solutions, but are really, uh, delivering bespoke solutions to these problems that are also scalable. That's, that's the challenge that I'm working on right now is creating consult, uh, you know, consulting solutions that don't just end up fitting into a template or become something that everybody else is delivering, but also doing that on a scalable level. So I think what, what happens between now and then is building a team and really training those people, um, to help them understand the way that service would be delivered if I were doing it myself for everybody. So basically trying to find a way to leverage, I mean, leverage people, but use your mindset. So everyone, when someone hires basically your firm or your mm-hmm. consultant, that they basically feel that they're getting the wisdom of Katie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the values of Katie, yeah. you know, I think that's, that's the critical thing is that, Um, A lot of what I see in my industry is being sold to people who, you know, who really have a need and they're being, they're being sold something that's a solution, but it doesn't actually solve their problems. Mm. And that's, that's where I differentiate myself and I differentiate my business is I intend to leave you with something that will solve your problems once I'm already gone. You know, it's, it's, I want, I want to, I want to have a value to a certain point, And then I want to be empower you to continue doing these things without me. Do you, in that kind of trajectory, is mm-hmm. it you're helping them get to a point, whatever. And then is it on them to find another person to help them maybe to get to the next level or is it simply you're, you're allowing them the opportunity to 
the tools they're going to need for the rest of their business or how, what does that look like? So I like to think of my work as sort of laying the foundation for a culture change. Okay. Um, and I think that that's the only way that a business or an individual ends up truly being resilient is if you start thinking about resilience as part of your everyday culture. And so I teach you how to do that, how to build it into various components of the work that you're doing, build it into the teams that you're asking to do the work. And so that it becomes a machine that runs itself once I'm already gone. But it's that commitment up front of, you know, the leaders recognizing the value in making that culture change instead of just going with the checkbox solution. So I'm going to end it with this, this question right here. If someone's listening, right. Mm -hmm. And they're not really sure, should I be reaching out to Katie? Should I not be reaching out to Katie? Who should be those, that ideal client that should be reaching out to you? Uh, and then what's the best way of them reaching out to you? So on the individual side, basically anyone who has lived through the global pandemic or any natural disaster in the last year, <laughs> two years, <laughs> and wants to feel more prepared for the next disaster that comes their way on the individual side. And for companies, same thing. Any company that has gone through the last year and is reflecting on their ability to continue operations and build their resilience in the face of what you know, whatever's set to come in the future, those folks should be reaching out to me too. Um, and everything exists on my website, www.katiedolfi.com. Perfect. Well, thank you, Katie, for being here. Hopefully everyone got listening, got some, some great nuggets right there. Um, I mean, I think anyone listening, you've been through the pandemic, so you're probably a, a good client for, for Katie right there. All the information for her are going to be in the show notes. Uh, so reach out and thank you again, Katie, for being on here. Thanks so much, Vinny. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.